One writer says, the epistle of James can be read right through in eight minutes. Yet its message is still powerfully relevant nearly 2,000 years later. Another says, our generation of Christians needs the epistle of James as few generations before have needed it. Another says, James pulls no punches. It is a practical book which reduces the pretensions of the religious to size. Another, in an age when so much preaching and teaching is sterile, academic, or sentimental, we need to hear what James has to say. Not least because he gets right to the heart of our present-day situation with such remarkable relevance. And finally, another says, few things would do more to revitalize present-day Christianity than a determined effort on the part of believers to take James seriously and put his teaching into practice. It has special relevance for those who are long on theory and short on practice. Now this book is a powerful book. As many of you know, it is a practical book. It is worthy of our consideration for the next weeks together, however long it takes us to get through this. You will not be disappointed in what God has to say to us in this wonderful book of James. Well, let me read the first four verses. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In regard to the background of this book, I would just uh, make only a couple of brief comments. First of all, the author appears to be James, the brother of Jesus. There are several Jameses in the New Testament. This appears to be James, the brother of Jesus, one of Joseph and Mary's natural sons, who later became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And it appears that this book has been uh, written very early in the life of the New Testament church. Indeed, it may be the very first New Testament book that was written. We don't know that for certain. But from the beginning, it has very practical things to say to us, and I find three things in these first few verses that I'd like to share with you this morning. The first is this. God has great plans for us. God has great plans for us. Now normally we take the verses in order, but we are such goal-oriented people, and we think so much in terms of cause and effect relationship, that I think it makes more sense for us to uh, start with the the end of our little section here, with the last verse, and work our way back. So we begin with verse 4, and this is the truth of verse 4, that God has great plans for us. Let me read it again. Verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. A few of us really take the time to think through what we hope to accomplish with our lives, but when we do, uh, even then, we probably think vocationally mostly. What are we going to do with our career? But here God tells us what he wants to do, not with our work, 
but with us. And he uses a couple of different terms. He wants to make us mature, first of all. Some of the older translations use the word perfect here, which often causes people to say, no way, there's no way I'll ever be perfect. But of course, with God, nothing is impossible. And indeed, that is exactly the goal of God's work in us, to make us absolutely holy, perfect. Nonetheless, the word which was formerly translated perfect primarily means mature or fully developed or having reached the goal. That's how it's translated here in the NIV, mature. And that's what God is doing in us. That's his plan for us, to raise us as his children so that we won't be babies anymore, but we'll be grown up, mature. The other word that he uses here to describe his plan for us is the word complete. In other words, God is concerned not only that we be grown up and fully developed, but also that there be nothing missing, that we be whole, well-balanced, having all the virtue that should uh, characterize a mature Christian. This is the picture of wholeness here. Both of these terms, mature, complete, or whole, are summarized in the, in the other statement in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, not lacking anything. No area of life short of its goal, and no area of life missing. That's God's great plan for us. Mature, complete, not lacking anything, anywhere. God has great plans for us. It's important to start here for when we get in the middle of trial and trouble, we tend to forget this truth. We begin to think that God is a tyrant trying to crush us underfoot, trying to destroy us rather than a father raising his children. And isn't that true? What person faced with a life and death trial has not begun to feel, God, why are you angry at me? God, what are you doing? Why are you against me? Reminds me of those days when I was raising my children, when I pressed them for excellence, disciplined them to remove some fault, or corrected them, trained them to correct some deficiency, don't you suppose that they just came running up to me and said, thank you, Father? <laughs> Not in your house either, huh? No, they think I'm mean. Dad is so mean. In reality, I just had greater plans for them than being a great skateboarder or whatever. I was not against them. I was more for them than they were for themselves. And in the same way, God has great plans for us. Oh, the Bible's full of this great truth, God's great plans for us. In Romans 8, 29, it says, Those who God foreknew, he predestined to be, listen to this, conformed to the likeness of his Son. Before we were ever born, God dreamed of making us to look like Jesus. Or in another passage in 1 Corinthians 2.9, we, 
We read, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. God's plans, in other words, are greater than anything you have ever thought, anything you have ever seen, anything you have ever heard. The, the grandest plan of maturity and completeness, not lacking anything of being the whole, wonderful, beautiful person, that God's plan is even bigger than what you dreamed, more than you can imagine. He has great plans for his children. Then in 1 John 3, we read, Dear friends, now we are the children of God. But what we will be has not been yet made known. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. It would be enough if we just lived as children of God. But this verse, this verse John says, that we know so far. We don't even dream what it's going to be when we see him face to face. And then another passage in Ephesians 5, we read that Jesus loved us and gave himself on the cross for his church, that he might present us to himself as a bride, clean, washed, radiant, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, holy and blameless, fit for marriage to the Lord Jesus. Make no mistake, God has great plans for his church, for his people, for those who know Jesus. And he was willing to give himself on the cross to make those plans a reality. This morning, if you're bogged down in the mire of despair at how your life's going, and the problems you're encountering. Lift up your eyes to the Lord Jesus who has called you to himself. Oh, you may have given up. And life may make no sense to you. And you may hate yourself. And you may find no reason to hope in yourself. But God is not limited to your weaknesses. And he has great plans for those he has chosen and called to himself in Jesus. So take heart and run to Jesus and make his plans your plans and abandon your petty dreams and dream of his glorious plans worked out in your life. Make your plans the same as his, for his plans are great. Well, working backward in our text, there's a second truth that we ought to learn in verse 3. Let me read verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must then finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Second truth here we need to learn is not just that God has great plans for us, but that God tests us to toughen our faith. God tests us to toughen our faith. Did you ever watch one of the major uh, marathons, Boston Marathon or New York Marathon or something on, on television? You ever watch the coverage of that? It's amazing when they start. You see this mass of thousands and thousands of people all crammed together to start the race, and you say, how can these people even run? Where would you even put your feet? There's just a mass of humanity. But the amazing thing is to see the finish. 
Because at the finish, it's just a trickle coming across the finish line. Where's everybody else? Now, I know that the coverage, you see mostly the winners, and winners come by themselves. They're all alone, and that's why they won. But still, what we seldom see is all those people who did not finish. Those who dropped out along the way, guts retching with exhaustion, and lungs burning for lack of oxygen, and legs all cramped up in pain. Those who were unable to finish because they weren't conditioned enough. They weren't tough enough to complete the marathon. Folks, in a similar way, the marathon of life is littered with spiritual casualties. You know them just like I do. We know their names. Some of them are related to us. The story is so familiar. Oh, I, I, I used to be a Christian. I used to believe all that stuff. I used to go to church all the time. But, well, a lot of things happened, and I had a lot of questions, and I don't know, somehow I got away from it, and now it just really doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't seem worth the bother to me. Spiritual casualties. Dropouts. Had some faith. But it wasn't conditioned enough. It wasn't tough enough to endure to the end. It died in infancy, never came to know the joys and challenges of mature Christian faith. Oh, but those whom God has chosen and called to himself will not drop out. They will not be lost. Not because they're better than anyone else, oh no. But because along with his plan to save them, God has a plan to condition them for the race so that they will endure to the end and be saved. And that training plan calls for testing. Trials of every kind. That's what verse 2 says. You face trials of many kinds, every kind of trial. You see, trouble and trial, every kind of trouble and trial you can think of is an opportunity for God to condition your faith, to toughen your faith, to teach you endurance and perseverance. Now, that includes a lot of different kinds of trouble. Sickness, poverty, physical handicaps, suffering, the death of a loved one, your own impending death, financial pressure, social pressure, the loss of your job, marital difficulties, trouble with your children, physical pain that won't go away, discrimination against you, and an infinite number of other kinds of troubles. make them worse, they just come out of nowhere. When you least expect them sometimes, don't they? Verse 1 says literally, we fall into them. That's the exact same expression used for the man that traveled on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it says he fell among the thieves who left him beaten and robbed along the side of the road until the good Samaritan came along. You know that story. He fell among the thieves. Out of nowhere, he was ambushed by the thieves 
who beat him up and left him for dead. And that's how trouble comes. Out of nowhere, it ambushes us and beats us up and leaves us lying bloody along the road. We fall into trouble. Well, you see, we don't go looking for trouble. In fact, we try to protect ourselves against troubles. And yet, as we all know, despite all of our plans and precautions, we still fall into trouble. We're not denying the evil that causes some of these things. We're not making the God the author of sin here. We're not minimizing the suffering involved. We're not saying that, that uh, we should, use, uh, should not use caution to avoid things that are hurtful. We're just saying that in spite of all of those things, in spite of recognizing the evil, in spite of using all the caution, in spite of everything that we could do, trouble still comes. And when it does, we always ask the same question. Why? Why, Lord? Why me? Why? So here's a partial answer to that, to the question why. God tests us. He lets us fall into trouble to toughen our faith. God's plan is to develop in us a relentless faith which will never quit under any circumstances. To make us so tough that if we should find ourselves in the position that Job found himself in, when he had lost everything, he had lost all of his children, all of his friends had turned against him, he was physically sick, and his wife was railing on him, and it seemed as if God himself were out to destroy him, right there, Job declared, Though God slay me, I will still trust him. That's tough faith, isn't it? You see, trouble is one of, the rule, one of the tools that God uses to develop that kind of persevere, that kind of staying power, that kind of tough, enduring faith. Look at verse 3 again. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops this perseverance. As one writer pointed out, this perseverance is not patience in the sense of a quiet submission or resignation, but rather a brave manliness which confronts the difficulties and contends against them without quitting on the one hand or defying God on the other. Or someone else said, it is that tenacity of spirit which holds up under pressure while awaiting God's time for reward or dismissal. Tough faith. Over the years, a pastor, any pastor, has the opportunity to talk to lots of people who are being crushed under the weight of terrible trouble. 
my personal observation is that when people find themselves in that situation, whatever the trouble is, there are really only two possible responses, some variation on one of these themes. One, you can shake your fist in God's face and say, how dare you? How can you do this to me? I hate you. Leave me alone. Many people do. But thus, you cut yourself off from the only source of hope you ever had. Or the other option is that you can run like a little child who is scared to death and hurting and in danger and not understanding what's going on with tears streaming down his cheeks. We can run into the arms of our Heavenly Father and say, Daddy, Daddy, I'm so scared it hurts so bad I don't know what's happening. Help me. When you boil it all down, those are the only two options you have in the face of trouble. To shake our fist in God's face or run into his arms. To shake our fist in God's face because we don't understand what's happening and it hurts so bad. Or to run into his arms because we don't understand what's happening and it hurts so bad. That's why God sends this trouble along the way. A little bit at a time. However much he knows we can take at that moment. To teach us. To toughen us. Until we learn to run to him rather than shake our fist at him. Toughen our faith so that we might endure to the end. God has great plans for us. He tests us to toughen our faith. Well, one more truth. We save the best one till last. Rejoice in what God is doing. I would have started with verse 2 here, but you would have uh, dismissed me as having lost my marbles. Let me read it again. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds when you f fall into trouble. Consider it pure joy. We live in a feel-good world. I know that's not news to you. We've all heard the cliches, if it feels right, it is right. Go with your feelings, trust your heart. They become part of our value system now, those little meaningless cliches. Indeed, in our culture, the, the ultimate answer, the irrefutable logic of our day, when asked, why did you do or not do something, to say, because I felt like it. How can you argue with that? <laughs> I felt like it, or I didn't feel like it. We don't even discuss much what we think. We discuss how we feel about it. We are a feeling-oriented, feeling-controlled people. But here, when trouble comes, faith 
and feeling, which are so often seen as if they're part of the same thing. My faith is my feeling toward God. Faith and feeling here collide head-on in the midst of trouble. They're not the same. They're quite different. We've all had trouble. What's our natural response? We feel bad. We don't feel like continuing. We don't feel like being responsible if that's causing us pain or it's not convenient. We don't feel like God is in control. We don't feel like God is still good. We don't feel like there's any reason to go on. We don't feel very good about anything. We often feel depressed and discouraged. And too often, we just do what we feel like. But God's way for his children is quite different. Those who know Jesus don't live that way. He says here that we know certain things because he told us. We know that God has great plans for us, bringing us to maturity and completeness. We know that the way that he is developing the perseverance which will take us to those ends is by allowing us to fall into various kinds of trouble, testing. We know that the reason for that trouble is not to destroy us, but to make us strong and persevering. Now God says, on the basis of what you know about me and my plan for you, I want you to rejoice when you fall into trouble. Rejoice when you see this process happening. Count it pure Joy when you fall into troubles of various kinds. Because you know what God's doing. Now, our immediate response is, but I don't feel God's presence in this. I don't feel any comfort from the Lord. I don't feel any encouragement from the Lord. How can I go on? How can I believe in him? How can I rejoice? I don't feel any of that. God would say to us, I don't care how you feel. I have explained what I'm doing in your life. I have told you so that you know. Now believe me enough to rejoice. He said, but I just don't feel like it. I feel so bad. I just can't go on. I can't control how I feel. I can't help it. And God would say, I have called you to walk by faith based on the facts of what I've told you, not by how you feel at the moment. I've told you what I'm doing. Believe me. Take your feelings by the ear and pick them up and go obey what I said. And that starts with rejoicing. Rejoicing, consider it pure joy. This is a battleground. We can smile about this and we can preach this, but folks, you and I know this is a battleground. 
Do I serve the Lord because and when I feel like it? Or do I serve him because I know what he said in his word? And therefore, even how I feel must bow its head in submission to what I know is true. To what God said. And the test, whether I believe it or not, will you rejoice? Will you rejoice? Will you count it pure joy when the trouble comes? And let me just clarify a couple things here before we quit. There's some things we're not saying here, just so you don't think that we've reached absolute absurdity here. We are not saying that trials are so much fun that we should seek out. We are not saying that we will enjoy trouble. We are not saying that we must delight when we see evil happening, when we see tragedy unfolding, that we should be, oh, good, 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 good. We are not refusing to recognize the heartbreak and the agony which accompanies many trials. We're not denying the evil that causes so much trouble, our worst trials, evil which God hates. No, we're not calling evil good. And we're not calling for some stoic resignation that feels nothing, that when surrounded by trouble just puts on a forced smile and ignores the pain. No, that's not quite it either. We're not saying any of those things. What, we're all, what we are saying is that God expects faith to triumph over our trials in a positive Christian attitude toward them, which in spite of the pain, sees trouble as an opportunity under God's sovereign grace, an opportunity for growth and maturity until we are complete in Christ. And in that, though we under, uh, understand or not why the trouble came, whether we feel good or bad, in that reality that we know what God's doing, we can lift our head in the midst of the most severe trial and say, thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in me. I consider it a joy to be trained by such a father. No matter how severe the pain in the moment, we rejoice. Not in the pain, but in the Lord. Rejoice in what God is doing. I know that uh, it's impossible that we would meet here this morning with even this many people and that somebody sitting here or many somebodies sitting here would not be hurting deeply. I would never make light of that. I don't intend to make light of that. But this morning I would say that God speaks to those of us who are hurting deeply most directly. When he calls us here to look beyond the hurt and to see what God says about it.
And what he says about it is, I've told you I have great plans for you. And I've told you that one of the tools that I use to bring about my plans is to allow this kind of trouble in your life because God could have stopped it, whatever it is. But he didn't. So now I want you to trust me and rejoice in faith, knowing God is in control. Songwriter Ron Hamilton expressed it in this in a new hymn about 20 years ago with which I'll close. God never moves without purpose or plan when trying his servant, molding a man. Give thanks to the Lord, though the testing seems long. In the darkness, he gives us a song. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistake. He knows the end of each path I take. For when I am tried and then purified, I shall come forth as gold. Amen. Thank you, dear Lord, for truth that looks beyond what we can naturally see and sees what we could only know by your revelation of yourself. Thank you, Lord, for uh, revealing to us something of your plans for us. Not the kind of plans we make to be more successful or richer or more comfortable, but plans to make us mature and complete, not lacking anything for all eternity. Thank you, Lord, for telling us how you work, something of the purpose of trouble that comes into our life. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us grace to then face that trouble, trouble that we've tried everything to avoid, but when it comes, allow us to face it, Lord, rejoicing in you, for we know that even this will not crush us. It will only make us tougher to endure to the end, trust in you. Work your grace in us, Lord. We could never do this by ourselves. If we were left to us, Lord, we would have to just give up and quit now. But thank you that it's not up to us, that you are working powerfully in us, and that your grace is sufficient for every single day. So give us the grace to trust you and depend upon you. And no joy in the middle of the pain. We pray in Jesus' name.